Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. Today we're continuing in our series on hard questions about the Christian faith. And Greg, would you introduce for us what our question is today? Yeah, the general topic is the problem of evil. And the way most people kind of have probably heard it said is, how can God be good if there's evil and suffering in the world? So kind of just the problem of evil and suffering. How do you answer that as Christians? How do you account for the fact that there's a good God and evil in the world? Yeah. This is one of the problems that you would probably encounter in a philosophy classroom, but also relates to a lot of different areas of life. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and lay it out actually in a logical syllogism. And so a logical syllogism is just like if you're sitting in philosophy, this is the standard way that things are laid out. And so the way a logical argument like this works is there's premises and conclusions and the premises should always lead to the conclusion and if an argument is valid that means if both or that means if all the premises are true then the conclusion naturally follows and so uh hopefully that will make sense as i go through it but here's here's the argument as you would have it presented formally perhaps in a logic classroom though there's different versions so the problem of evil would be if god is omnibenevolent meaning all good omnipotent meaning all powerful and um, omniscient, meaning he knows all things, then evil would not exist in the world. That's the first premise, premise one. If God is all good, all knowing, all powerful, then evil would not exist in the world. The second premise would be that evil does exist in the world. That's just a claim that evil exists in the world. You can see that. And therefore, the conclusion is that the God who is omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipotent, does not exist and because if there was a god who was and the basis of that is premise one is based on the idea if there was a god who was all-powerful all-knowing all good he would not allow evil to exist in the world he would not allow that to be the case he would stop evil because he has the power and the ability to stop it and because he's good he would want to stop it and so that argument is what's called valid meaning that if those premises are true Uh, And then the conclusion actually does lead from that. And so it's valid, but the question we're going to ask is, is that argument sound? And sound is when both the – or all the premises are true, and then the conclusion does follow from the premises. And so ultimately, uh, we're going to reject one of those premises. We're not going to reject that evil exists in the world. So we're going to instead reject the first premise, and we're going to argue that actually if God – is omnibenevolent, meaning all good, he's omniscient, meaning all-knowing, he's omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, then that does not exclude the possibility of God allowing evil to exist in the world for some sort of a greater purpose. So Doug, can you give us some more insight into this um, argument and another way that it's been put forward? Yeah, another version of this was put forward by Rabbi Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. 
And this is another way that we're more commonly acquainted with this question. How could a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? And Kushner looks at the story of Job. And the Bible tells us that Job is a righteous person. But horrible things happen to him. And so there are three beliefs that he says can't possibly be true together. The first is that God is all-powerful. The second is that God is just and good. And the third is that Job is a good person. If all those are true, he says, the sufferings that Job endures can't possibly happen. So he ends up coming to the conclusion that God is not all-powerful because Job is righteous and it would be terrible to conclude that God is not good. So he says the best option is to believe that God is not ultimately in control of all things. So this idea that when good things happen or bad things happen to good people, that our best option is to conclude that God isn't really in control. He's still working and he's powerful, but he can't possibly be all good and all powerful. But before we get into our answers to that, we want to go into how our family in particular really began to wrestle with the questions of how God can be in control and good when something horrible happens. So Greg, would you tell a little bit of what that's looked like in our family? Yeah, we shared a little bit of it in the last podcast, but in a little bit more detail, about 23 and a half years ago, our family got into a car accident and we were sitting still in traffic in Chicago and a big uh, vehicle hit, smashed us from behind. And that ended up just causing a lot of pain for our mom, a lot of chronic pain. And it continued getting worse over the next few days after the accident happened. And it ended up leading to about 11 years where she would say that her pain level was at about a seven to nine on the pain scale and hardly any sleeping most of those years, uh, living in chronic pain, constant headaches. And it was just a really hard season of life. And there was a lot of depression and it was during when we were young kids. And so that, that was a a little bit of a crazy combo of living in chronic pain and having young kids. And I think through that time, one question that our family was wrestling through was how could God let that happen? How could God enable something like this to happen? And then also, why is it not stopping? And we different, we tried a lot of things, you know, praying in faith that God could heal our mom and people would even say sometimes you know if you just have enough faith this will be gone and we really did cry out to the lord over and over and over asking for relief for mom i remember that every night we'd go to sleep and when we're lying down in bed we'd pray that mom's pain would go away and it was i think about a maybe i don't know how many 10 to 11 years into it where my parents picked picked up a book called When God Weeps by Johnny Erickson Tata. And Johnny Erickson Tata is a lady who had a diving accident when she was a teenager and it ended up crippling her. 
and then she had basically her whole life she's just lived paralyzed and a couple things that started to stick out to our parents from that book one is a quote by R.C. Sproul I think it's R.C. Sproul in the book that says that not one molecule in the entire universe is out of place otherwise God would not be God and so basically nothing happens without purpose or meaning and nothing's really outside of God's control and that was one thing that stuck out to them but another thing that I think really impacted them and impacted us was when Johnny shared that she's as she looks back at the way that this accident has changed her life she's really thankful for it because she says there's no way I would know God and the goodness of God the way I do now if this would have never happened and I just think that when they heard that that was so powerful thinking about is that what we believe and I think that really now as we look back at that and we've been saying this for years but like yeah this is one of the hardest things you could go through is living in chronic pain and yet the way that our family has grown and trusting God and seeing God's goodness and the way that we've been drawn to the Lord through it we're so thankful for that and it's had such a powerful impact and one verse that has really stuck out to our family and especially to our mom during this time of second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen and it says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary struggles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of them. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And it says Basically, what that verse is saying is these difficulties that we go through that are light and momentary, which we say are never seem light or momentary, are achieving for us something eternal that far outweighs all of them. And one day we'll look back on all the difficulties, all the pain of life, and be thankful for the way the Lord has used and orchestrated all those things together for our eternal good and joy. Hmm. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, Mom gave a message last fall that I just listened to recently. You guys probably listened to it last fall. I ended up being behind on a lot of things. Um, but for anybody that's listening, if you just go to YouTube and type in Beth Luby, uh, it will be the first thing that comes up. But she just shares her story of the pain that she's walked through and what it's looked like to trust God and all of that. And it's a beautiful story. It's defined... A f- for us so much of how we view pain in the world as her son's grown up seeing her just constantly in pain and not remembering what our mom is like apart from pain and but then seeing her faith and walking with the lord in that yeah even as i had back surgery a couple of years ago and just the last couple of months i've been confined to the ground because i retweaked my back and it was rough, but nothing compared to what mom went through and seeing her trust the Lord in that way is just sweet. And I do love that Johnny Erickson Tata influence and my parents and we don't know God the way Johnny does, but we mm-hmm. want to. And I feel like God's actually brought yeah. that about for them. And one more quote that I like from Johnny, she says, I'm grateful for my quadriplegia. It's a bruise of a blessing, a gift wrapped in black. 
is the shadowy companion that walks with me daily, pulling me and pushing me into the arms of my Savior. And that's where the joy is. And one of the things that I heard Johnny share after about 50 years of being paralyzed is that her being paralyzed was nothing compared to the chronic pain that she ended up having. So several years in, just because she was lying down all the time, or just extreme and excruciating pain that made losing the use of all of her limbs seem like nothing to her. And to hear that, but still this sense of this absolute confidence in the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord is amazing. Yeah, so if I'm going to address the problem of evil, um, Greg, I think I've picked this up some from you and Doug, but there's a lot of, it depends a lot of times who you're talking to on how you address this question. Um, but when I think of the problem of evil, I mean, there's the philosophy classroom problem where you're going to lay it out in a logical syllogism like I did earlier. But then I, I think in a certain sense, I just sort of think of the problem of evil is really, it's a human problem. And whether you're a Christian or not, whatever background you come from, it's sort of like, welcome to humanity. You're facing the fundamental human problem, which is there is evil in the world. There's pain and suffering in the world, and it's clear and present all around you. And you can be an optimist and try and uh, look for the good in the world, and I think that's great, and I think we should do that. But the reality is we have to face the fact that we live in a world in which there is real evil um, really all around. And so I'd say there's two fundamental ways, no matter who you are, that you can address this question. The first way is to say, you know, ultimately in the end, um, there is no meaning. There is no purpose behind this evil. Um, Life is chaotic. Life is meaningless. Or I can create my own sort of meaning. Um, But no matter how hard you try and create meaning in your own life and in the world, um, you will ultimately be blotted out and existence is not merely cruel to you, like the world is cruel, mean to you. It's just indifferent to you. It doesn't care about you. And the evil and hardship that you go through is meaningless. And so that's the first honest way of answering, or somewhat honest way of answering it. This people would, some people would say, if I'm say, or I'd say if they're honest with themselves and they don't believe that there is God um, or good winning out in the end, you kind of have to take that view. The other view would be to say, I do see the evil, I do see the chaos in the world, and yet I believe there's an intentionality, a purpose, and I believe that in the end, good will win out, and there's a reason for what is going on, and all the evil that has gone on and is going on will in the end be justified by a greater good that occurs. And so it's not as though the scriptures are in different to this problem or unaware of it, I would say that this tension of evil, this problem of evil is one of the fundamental tensions running throughout the entire pages of scripture. We see it in the beginning when humanity falls into sin. So a few statements I would make clear then. My basic view is that I do believe what I would say is the greater good argument, that there is a greater good that God is intending through the existence of evil in the world. And I want to give that with a few clarifiers. And so the clarifiers I would give is, first of all, I believe that God never sins. So John, 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So I, 
I think that needs to be clear. God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So I believe God is innocent of all evil. He would never sin. He is light and not darkness, and he tempts no one to sin. And yet I also believe that God works through the evil in the world for a greater purpose than what would be accomplished apart from evil in the world. I think a great example of this in the Old Testament is in Genesis, where Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery, and then he rises to a place of prominence within Egypt, and he saves many people by his position of power. And what he says in Genesis 50, 20 to his brothers, who actually sold him into slavery and did great evil against them, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he takes that evil that's happened to him and he says, God meant it for good. There was a greater good working behind your evil that God who causes no one to sin and in his light in himself used for a greater good. And I think it comes from John Piper, this next argument that I'll make. But I think if you can prove that the greatest act of evil within all human history was used for the greatest act of good, then you can have a very strong case to be confident that evil is actually able to be used for a greater good by God. And so if you think, what is the greatest evil? What's the worst thing that's ever happened in human history? What's the greatest injustice? I would argue that the greatest injustice is Jesus Christ, who is innocent and blameless, and yet was crucified and uh, crucified by people. And so no greater injustice because you have no greater innocent party, no greater um, evil done to him, which is the killing of the son of God himself, who has no fault and yet is killed as though he's the worst of sinners. And this is what is said by Peter in Acts 22 or in Acts 2.22 about Jesus. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by, to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up to the according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he says of Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was no mere incident. It was the plan from the beginning that Christ would be crucified, and yet it was done by the hands of sinful men. And so the greatest evil that's ever occurred, which is the killing of Christ, the innocent son of God, was also the means of the greatest good ever, which is the glorification of Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, and now his eternal reign, and the salvation of all his people who will enjoy life with him forever. And so I would argue the greater good is the reason why I believe God can be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all good and yet still allow evil to exist in the world because he has a plan that goes beyond that so that's kind of my answer if i was to give uh, my best shot at it um, what would you say it's for you greg what's your answer why would god allow evil to exist in the world yeah i think that that's kind of the same premise as that i would go off of as the greater good and especially pointing to the cross where that's where we see that all come together and what i kind of try to do is just start it there and see how far out I can go from there and understanding other things but that's 
that's a great starting point. Um, and like you said, Mark, there's just so many different ways you can go with this. And so we'll address a lot of different stuff later about maybe some assumptions or the way that this framework is even posed. But one thing that I just initially say is just we look at this problem and often I'm sure you guys and a lot of people listening have probably known a lot of people who turned away from God because they saw something bad happen to someone they know or something hard has happened. And one thing that I think doesn't help really in this question is getting rid of God because sometimes I think people say, well, you know, if evil in this, if there's evil and suffering in the world, there is no God. That's sometimes a jump that's made, but that doesn't really solve anything. All that that means uh-huh. is that there is no ultimate purpose. There is no ultimate good behind your pain, behind your suffering. It's totally meaningless, and there's no hope of redemption. So that doesn't really fix the problem of just getting rid of God. It actually gets rid of any hope of resolution or redemption or purpose behind it. And then the other possible solutions that we sometimes have of saying God's not all powerful, kind of remaking God, that doesn't really help either because then it's not really God anymore. It's kind of just some ethereal force that's not really that relevant in our lives or not really worth following. And so a lot of the ways that we kind of go or remake God doesn't doesn't solve that problem. And so that's where I do try to go to what is maybe that greater good is it and there is this reality that we live in a broken world and sin has come in and fractured it and there's by incredible byproducts of sin and the weight of sin and yet i think the story that we see across scripture is god's redemption of the world and his plan to restore and redeem all things and we see these truths that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And specifically for Christians, what's incredible about this is what we shared before with mom's story is that there's this incredible hope through the suffering, through the difficulty that we go through, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And Mm. that good people often think of that in terms of cultural standards but it's really drawing us closer to god it's god's glory being made known in and through our lives it's finding greater joy and hope in god now and eternally and so what i kind of say is any i guess what hope i have through every difficulty i go through through the kind of somewhat chronic back pain i have right now is that in a hundred trillion years or however time works in eternity, I'm going to look back and be so thankful for the way that God used this in and through my life. And so there's just such a hope that we can look to and anchor our lives on as Christians, knowing that God isn't an ambulance driver trying to drive around, fix things and just react to what's happening. But he's uh, the way I've heard it said is like a surgeon carefully orchestrating everything together carefully planning out making cuts and that ultimately has a greater purpose and plan and so that's that's just such an anchor for life that every single difficult thing you go through will be not meaningless not purposeless but eternally 
glorious. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. What about you, Doug? What would, would be your answer to this question? Yeah, I really like the things that you guys were saying. Um, Greg, even as you're talking about redemption, I was thinking about maybe changing my answer a little bit. So we'll see where this ends up going. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that there is that hope for us that our pain is not meaningless, but God is actually using it to accomplish a greater purpose. And that's right at the core of mom's key verses of Second Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, that's achieving an eternal weight of glory. So we don't say that as Christians, there is no pain. We don't say don't grieve. We don't say it doesn't matter because one day you'll be at heaven and you'll be without pain. So just suck it up for right now. Mm-hmm. No, it's pain's a lot more terrible than that. And the horrors that happen in the world do cause us to grieve. We see that in yeah. Christ and the way that he grieves over sorrow and sorrows over sin and brokenness and death. Um, but then how do we perceive this? Is it something we just have to get through? Is it just meaningless or is it accomplishing something? So I love Romans eight that talks about the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And in John at the last supper, Jesus talks about the pain of childbirth, but then a woman gives birth to a child and forgets her pain for the joy that a child has been born into the world. And I think that analogy is helpful because the pain of childbirth is more miserable than anything that I've experienced. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. terrible. It's not something you yeah, just kind of get over. You're like, oh yeah, it's not that bad. It's horrible. Yeah. It also gives me greater appreciation for mom saying that she lived at a level of seven to nine pain for over a decade and still at a pretty intense level because a 10 is giving birth to three boys. That's crazy to me. Um, or breaking but the femur. It's not, hey, this isn't painful. It's not that um, it just doesn't matter, but it's that we have hope that it's actually achieving something, that God is bringing about a redemption. And the fall and sin has affected all of creation. It's affected our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, and our relationship to creation. And God's at work to bring about a total redemption and all of that. And I love the statement that you're making, Mark, of taking this to the cross. One of the verses that's always stood out to me is Isaiah 53, 10 which says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush Jesus. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this passage is talking about Christ going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And it says that it was God's will to crush him. And I almost don't have a category for that. This verse made me uncomfortable for a while. And now to see, oh, even this pain that Christ is going through that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God is good. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the questions then is, why would God create a world with sin? And in a little bit, Greg's going to actually mention something about that. But one of the things that's also helpful to say is if there wasn't sin, brokenness, pain, 
then there would be aspects of God's nature that we wouldn't see. We wouldn't see his forgiveness in our lives for our sin and brokenness. We wouldn't see his grace. We wouldn't see his justice. We wouldn't see the meeting of all of these things in the cross. So there's something about God that gets revealed that wouldn't happen apart from all of this sin and brokenness. So as I listened to all of our answers, one of the things that stood out to me is that none of us brought up free will as the answer to the problem of evil. And some of the people that we really respect who have really helped us with apologetics questions will go there. Like Rabbi Zacharias uses this. I think C.S. Lewis might as well. But it didn't come up as the answer to all of our questions. Although we would all say that's a part of it. But Mark, would you help us understand why that wasn't the main place that we go to to answer the problem of pain and evil? Yeah, I think the main reason I don't initially go to free will is because I don't think of free will necessarily as a final answer, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like I, I would say free will is part of the equation of how did sin enter the world? Adam and Eve were, you know, they by their own free will, did sin against God. I think that's that's clear, that's fair. But it doesn't seem like it quite gets to the end of the question. Because even if you ask, if you answer it, well, you know, why is evil in the world? Because God gave free will. Then you have to really ask the question, well, why has God given us free will? And part of this is I'm maybe somewhat disillusioned with the answer that most people give to that. Because typically the answer that's given to that is something along the lines of, Uh, if God or God gives us free will because he can't make you love him, he won't make you love him. And so he wants us to love him freely. He doesn't want us to be like robots. And therefore, um, God gives us free will. And one of the necessary implications of that is there is a true ability to sin because of that sin is in the world. But this is the only way that we can freely and honestly love God. Now, I would say my biggest issue with that is I just don't see a case for that biblically. Uh, Some of those like further implications of that, especially the statement. I think one of the most problematic churchism statements that we have going around is God cannot make you love him. Mm -hmm. And a big reason for that is because I think that actually the promises of the new covenant entail exactly that, that God will cause you to love and obey him. So I'll just read a little bit of that. Um, For example, in Ezekiel uh, 36, this is the promise of the new covenant, and this is what's actually told by God. Um, okay, so this is the promise in Ezekiel 36 that uh, God gives to the people about us loving and knowing him. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall I'll be clean from all your uncleanliness cleanliness uncleannesses and from all your idols i will cleanse you and i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i'll put within you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and what's interesting about there is it seems like the promise actually is that god will cause us to walk in his statutes obey his rules that he's actually going to change give us a new heart. And so I would say when people say God cannot make you love him, I ultimately think if that's true, then God's promises fail. 
God's old covenant or old Old Testament promises about the new covenant that he will make like cause a fear of us in his heart in our hearts to love and to know and obey him those promises hinge on the fact that god is actually going to give us a new heart and a new spirit and to push it a step further maybe if that's not convincing if you think about the question can you lose your salvation in heaven most christians would not disagree on this one most Christians would say, no, you can't lose your salvation in heaven, in the eternal state. You will always be with God. You will always love God. But then the question of will you have free will in heaven, most people would also want to say, yes, you'll have free will. But here's an issue. If you can't lose your salvation, and yet you can only love God um, if you have the ability to fall into sin, then the question arises, is that like in the eternal state, can you fall away then? And if not, are you actually truly loving God? And so those are those are just some considerations to think through of the way we sometimes talk about free will. And we, I think we sort of slap it on as this easy answer. And we say, you know, God can't make you love him when the new covenant promises actually talk about God changing our hearts so that we do love and we do obey his rules, that we have a transformed heart that rather than enslavement to sin, it's the love of God. And that's not slavery, that's freedom. Mm-hmm. Um free to be a slave to God, to love and follow him with your whole life. And so that's a little bit of where I, I think I just get disillusioned with the idea of free will and think it's not the ultimate best answer, though it's part of the answer. What are your thoughts, though? Yeah, I think to say that you have to be able to reject God in order to like really love him. Yeah, like heaven, that doesn't work because there we won't fall away we won't even be tempted to fall away the other place that it doesn't work is within the trinity if it's necessary to be able to reject one another to truly love then how does that work for father son and holy spirit that they don't have a desire to go against one another they're not tempted to break apart but that is the best most perfect loving relationship um so i think even just that idea that the ability to like sin against god is necessary to really love him it doesn't quite work in terms of even just god himself and it doesn't work for god's love towards us that god would have to have the possibility of being unfaithful to us to really love us no it's his love is amazing because it's consistent yeah. not because he's tempted to go against it and chooses somehow to love us anyway but he loves us because of who he is and then i think the other part for free will is yes that is a part of the fall but it doesn't have the shoulders to carry the weight of all the brokenness that's in the world to say in order to justify all this pain, all this evil, we have to be able to have free will. Like, well, maybe take free will away from me. Maybe make me a robot in a perfect relationship with yeah. you. Unless there's something yeah. greater that God's got going about it. And whether somebody's Arminian or Calvinist, like we were talking about last time, I'm not super concerned here. But just the point that I'm wanting to make is that free will doesn't answer all the problems. It is clear that all this pain, brokenness that's in the world is a result of human decision, human sin. They couldn't have been in a better place 
than the Garden of Eden with everything they wanted, perfect relationship, perfect work, walking with God, and yet they go against God. So it is set up where there couldn't have been a better situation for humans to obey, and yet we fail. And that does need to be a part of our answer, that this is a consequence of human sin, all the brokenness that's in the world. But to say that that is therefore good because we have free will, I don't think it quite answers it. There has to be something even bigger than God is doing than just for the sake of free will, all this evil has come about. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good point on like what's the culmination of all things and what's God's ultimate plans and purposes in creating the world. Is it more tied to our own choices and us loving God or what's his greatest plan? I think that throughout the scriptures that you see very clearly that God's ultimate plan in the creation of the world is a display of his glory. And I think you can make a pretty strong argument from Ephesians one and other sections that the pinnacle of that is this, the display of the glorious grace of God and so when you think about God displaying, magnifying his glory and his grace as the ultimate purpose versus it kind of being something that has more of a man-centered focus, more to do with us, that's a lot different perspective mm. from which you approach the question and through how you see all of that. Yeah. And that ties even to that idea of free will, but many other things as well. And I do think there's a reality of, this idea too, that when we see and know Christ, we turn to him, that does show that, you know, we're displaying his goodness, his greatness. There's a quote from uh, John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, that I thought was really helpful on this. And it ties in with the fact that we'd still say there is a, a really a, a change of your heart, a change of your will, and its ability to freely love God. Um, and he's talking about why God allows Satan to continue to exist in the world. And he says, uh, God's purpose is to defeat Satan in a way that glorifies not only Christ's raw power, but also his superior beauty and worth and desirability. Christ could simply exert sovereign power and snuff Satan out. This would indeed glorify Christ's power, but it would not display so clearly the superior worth of Jesus over Satan. It would not display the transforming beauty and power of Christ's meekness and humility in humility and lowliness and self-emptying love. The aim of the gospel is to put the glory of the crucified Christ on display and to shame Satan by the millions of people who turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and forsake Satan's lie in preference for the beauty of Christ in the gospel. And why I like that quote is I just think it points out this idea of there is this reality of in Christ the allowance that you know in the evil in the world this turning of our hearts to christ does display a beauty a worth a glory to god um, and i think that goes beyond merely just saying you know we have free will but it, it it is a what god ultimately is accomplishing and turning people's hearts through that yeah. and i have a little bit of a story about that from my time at cu i had a friend who was in a philosophy he was a philosophy major and in one of his philosophy classes, they were talking about theodicies, which is trying to answer the question of how is God all good, all powerful, and what's the other one? <laughs> in control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
yeah, I guess all good and all powerful. How do you kind of reconcile those things and what they would do? This is a non-Christian professor, but they would go through different theories saying, well, God's all good, but he's not all powerful. And they basically just break those down and critique them and find all the flaws in the arguments. And then they'd go from the other side of it where God's all um, powerful, but not all good. And they'd kind of break those down. They would keep going through theodicies throughout the semester and he said it got to be a point where it was a little bit discouraging just because so many different theories and hypotheses were just being shredded in class by all these, by the teacher and by the students. But then they got to Mala Branch and his theodicy, and the professor basically spent time describing this theodicy, which is kind of what we've been talking about, how God is all good and all powerful and all loving, and yet his greater purpose is the display of his glorious grace, and even the display of those characteristics being tied to it, his greatness, his goodness, his all, being all powerful and all good, everything in all human history is culminated in the chief end of those things being magnified and seen through all the pain and evil and suffering in the world. And so all those work together to display God's glory and his goodness and power. And so the professor went for a while describing this theory, and then he went over to his desk and sat down. And he said there was about a 30-second awkward silence where no one said anything. And then one student raised their hand and said, well, what's the counter to this one? And the professor said, there's not really a counter to this one. <laughs> it just kind of, I mean, it was kind of more, do you believe it or not? Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of funny, such a yeah, yeah. different approach. One of the ways <laughs> that I've heard Malabranch described is basically that he makes a point that we often ask, why would a good God create a broken, sinful world? But that it's better to ask, why would a good God create a world at all? And so we often ask, why would a good guy create a world like it is with all this pain? But he says, step back a little bit and ask, why did God create, period? And that you'll get into the situation like you were talking about, that he might show his glory, that he might show the fullness of who he is. And if God had created a world without sin and rebellion, he would have created a world where he doesn't show his forgiveness, his grace, his justice his love in the same ways. And we all are amazed by the love of God and by his forgiveness and grace, but that wouldn't be clear apart from pain. Yeah. I had a professor at CU and he, he would sometimes make fun of Christianity, but I enjoyed being in his classroom. And uh, one of his statements about this was uh, we were talking through, you know, or we, he would bring this up where people would sometimes say, I don't even know if it was in the context of actually having the discussion, but he'd just bring it up sometimes where people would say, you know, you can't have good unless there's evil in the world. And he would say, you know, that's one of those statements that sounds good until you think about it. And, and, and I want to clarify that we're not saying you can't have good unless there's evil in the world um, because God in the Trinity is in constant state or he has always been, and there's been good without Mm -hmm. evil. Um, So it's not a dualism, but his response, which was somewhat of a crude, but uh, to the point response was, he said, so you mean I can't enjoy a beer unless the Holocaust happened? Mm -hmm. And his argument is essentially, you're saying there can be no good 
apart from evil, and that's ridiculous. And I would actually agree with that. I think that is yeah. ridiculous because God in the Trinity is light, not darkness. And he has existed and has always been apart from darkness. And so it's not to say that there has to be evil to be any sort of good because God has always existed as good. But what we are saying, and I think this is brings the clarity, is the idea of a greater good, a greater intentionality, a greater purpose, a greater design that apart from that evil would not be put on display in the same way. And so I think that's even just a helpful clarification to put out of it's not you can't have good without evil, but that there's a greater good. And that's the argument we're making of what we believe about why God would allow it. Yeah, and God sees the, it's a heavy truth, but God sees the ultimate good behind all those things worth whatever that means or looks like or plays out and it is worthy enough to um yeah have all the difficulty in this world yeah something along those lines that i've heard you both talk about is the idea of the best of all possible worlds and i was wondering if mark or doug you guys could shed some light on that idea yeah so I, I love the phrase best of all possible worlds. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to talk about um, because I think it's actually an incredibly cool concept. And so best of all possible worlds is essentially saying there are many, and this is, this is getting into my philosophical side a little bit. There's many possible worlds that could exist. And so say you say there's an infinite number of ways that God could have created and could have made the world and there's infinite number of outcomes that could have come about. God, knowing all the possible infinite outcomes, has chosen the best possible, the best of all possible worlds, and that is the one that we are in, and is the best of all possible worlds to display his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, the fullness of all of his attributes for his glory and the enjoyment of him by his people forever. So that's the best of all possible worlds. What that means on a practical level is when I stub my toe, it's best of all possible worlds. <laughs> and, and I joke about that, but like literally that's how I think about it. Like right now I have a little bit of a head cold. It's like, oh, that's a bummer. I got an ACL reconstruction lately. And there's so there's some bad things happening or seemingly bad things. Uh, there's some good things happening in my life. There's some great things happening I'm excited about. But the best of all possible worlds means I literally, at this moment, in a, am in the best of all possible situations for my good and God's mm. glory. And if that's true, that is an unbelievably, unbelievably powerful statement. That is, mm. that, like, that's not, we cannot let that just be some sort of a heady concept. That is the best possible news that you could ever possibly receive the best of all possible mm -hmm. worlds mm -hmm. god is doing what he can or he in his infinite power to bring about you if you're in christ your ultimate everlasting eternal good in no single part of your life when looking back on it will you say it could have been better if only this changed so if you're a christian and you hold to that view which i think you should from scripture that is an incredible, incredible promise. So Romans eight twenty eight to twenty nine, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together according to good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that idea of, is it just working for a good? It, it sort of works out in the end, or is it working for a maximal best of all possible worlds? And so sometimes people call best of all possible worlds uh, like the seventh point of Calvinism. I think that might be more of a joke than <laughs> an accurate thing. It's obviously not um, part of the first five points, but I love it. And I think it's a truth that if you can get your mind around, will utterly shake every single moment of your life. And it's, yeah, th- there's nothing better than it. So Yeah, there's, there's two things kind of along that line that uh, I've heard Tim Keller say. And one is that talking about just prayer in general, but I think it definitely ties to praying about difficult circumstances in life, is that we would never answer prayers differently than God does if we knew everything that God knew. And so um, all the times that we are baffled and confused, we would, if we knew everything God knew, we'd never actually change our circumstances. And then the other thing is kind of along these lines, because I think this is a big maybe objection or assumption is that if we can't see exactly how God does that, then, or if we can't exactly see what the reason is, then there can't be one. I think that's the way most people kind of we can easily functionally think I don't exactly know how God's using this for good or I don't know what the purpose of this is or how it's going to work out and there's probably going to be a lot of things that we just don't know in this life exactly how it works for good eternally but that doesn't mean there's not a reason it just means we might not be aware of it and one illustration I've heard for this is when you are doing sewing Mm -hmm. like a picture on a blanket or something and you look at the back of it and all the stitching and stuff is a little bit messed up and doesn't make sense and there's not really anything coherent and clear but when you turn it around on the front side you see the whole picture and you see that there was actually a purpose and design behind it and actually made something really beautiful and in a lot of ways that might be I think that will be kind of how eternity is. There's going to be a lot of those cross stitches. A lot of things or stuff was cut and we're like, how does that tie together? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? And yet one day we'll see and there'll be no difficulty, pain or circumstance that will, like you're saying, Mark, look back and say, oh, that I would change that now. We'll see how it was used for our good, our eternal joy god's eternal glory and we'll see even god's goodness and love towards yeah, us yeah i also really like the best of all possible worlds idea but great i think the point you made there is great it's like we're looking at the back side of this tapestry we don't see how all this fits together i don't get <laughs> how all of the pain and suffering that's in the world we can see glimpses of that in the issues that mom's gone through and now how that benefits us today but there's a lot of things that are really evil and horrible that i can't even pretend to give an answer Mm -hmm. to but there's hope for us that one day we'll be with god and we will see him and all will be made right even when we don't yet know the why of all these suffering and pain will be with god revelation 21 says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes we will see him as he is. We will become mm. like him. And I think in that moment, 
where we actually see him, where we're brought into eternity as we see the redemption that he's accomplishing. I don't think all of our questions will be gone yet in that moment. I think he'll unfold that over time. But in that moment, we'll see, yes, God is good and he's in control. And there's hope there that this isn't just meaningless stuff, but he's accomplishing something good. And Mark, you brought up Romans 8.29. And I think that's a huge verse for this conversation. Because Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. What is that good? Romans 8.29, that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ. Mom talks about it all the time that our goal is comfort, to just be at ease and relaxed, to not have chronic pain, to not suffer horrible evils. But God's goal is our completion, that he'd make us more like Christ. How would you guys say that idea of God's goal being completion rather than comfort plays into this discussion? Yeah. One just quick uh, verse to add on to what you were saying, Doug, is leading up to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, which we've been talking about, but it uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And it keeps going into all these things and how ultimately they're going to result in thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And just, I like that phrase of perplexed. There's times we're perplexed, but, and that's okay to be perplexed and confused and, uh, but yet you're not abandoned through that and God's yeah. not distant. He's, he's there. And I think that's tend to what we were saying, like what you're saying in the Romans eight twenty eight through 29, God works for good for those who love him in all things. And yeah, that's so much different than what, if I could just choose my circumstances in life, they would often look a lot different and I would want things to be more comfortable to be more easy, and yet God's greater plan is conforming to the image of Christ. That's for our joy. That's for his glory. That's for the sake of others coming to know Christ. And one uh, illustration I kind of use for this, and why I think this is such maybe a confusing question or a question that causes a lot of debate is... I heard this from my friend James. I think he made it up, but might might not have. But it's the idea of the Copernicus Revolution, where they used to think that the Earth was the center of the solar system, or center of the universe, and that everything kind of, all the stars rotate around the Earth. And so over time, the models to accurately measure star patterns were inaccurate. But when Copernicus realized that you know, I, he didn't still fully get it right, I don't think, but he realized that everything was rotating around the sun, then they were actually able to make models that worked and correlated, and I'm sure they tried to kill him back in those <laughs> days for that model, but because uh, that's how science worked back then. But uh, I think that in a similar way, if we see this question based on cultural values, our greatest cultural values are based on humanism so what's going to make me most happy in the moment what's going to make me most comfortable and so we kind of see ourselves essentially as the center of all things and everything rotates around us and when it comes to god god 
also rotates around us. And so if God can make us comfortable, if he can make us happy, then he sort of fits into our worldview and maybe we'll follow him or have him as part of our life. But if things go bad, then, you know, forget God. I'm just going to push him out and find other things that make me happy. But when we have God at the center and see that everything's for his glory and that we're rotating around that and all of our life circumstances are rotating around that and achieving that end of God being glorified and our joy in him, then that just totally changes the way that you Hmm. see this whole thing. And it totally changes the way that you see the circumstances and difficulties in your life and the way that you're able to embrace them, not with happiness and giddiness, but with true joy and hope. And I think that's been a really powerful thing in our lives over the past couple years after we got married, we just had a lot of crazy stuff happen from Gretchen's dad passing away to, um, to like both having a lot of physical pain and um, just a lot of circumstances that seem so mm. far out of our control. And one thing that we've just learned through those difficulties is how do we kind of reframe the way that we see circumstances like physical pain? Are we just going to say, woe is me? Um, this is the worst. I wish this wasn't here. There's, times where it really feels like that (laughs) but the way we're trying to really think about is reframe it of what are we going to see that god has done through this season and how are we going to see his goodness and what name are we going to put on this season to describe you know what god has done here in Mm -hmm. and through our lives and how are we going to remember it in view of that instead of um something else yeah greg i think that's really helpful that idea of is the world revolving around me or around God? And that being one of the biggest questions. It was my first year on staff with the Navs, reading Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. And I realized I've talked about the glory of God for my whole life, but I fundamentally think about the world as human-centered and me-centered, and God kind of fits into that. And now I would have known that wasn't quite right, But I realized as I think about particularly this question of the problem of pain, but also a lot of things in life, I view God as fitting into my world instead of me being a part of his greater world that's going on. And Greg, as you were talking, it reminded me about Job again, because he's got all these horrible things that happen to him. He loses all of his material prosperity. His wife leaves him. He gets boils on his body. All his children die. You want to talk about horrible things happening to somebody it's job but then god shows up and god doesn't even answer his questions of why have all these things happened god just says here is who i am here are the things that i've done in creation here is my power and job responds my ears had heard of you but now my eyes have seen you he repents before the lord for condemning God. But what's fascinating is God doesn't at that point um, explain all of the things that happened or why, but he just shows up and he's present. And I think sometimes in pain, we really want answers for all the things that have happened, but deeply underneath it all, what we want is God to show up and be present in our lives and the pain. And that's what God did for Johnny Erickson Tata, it's what God did for our parents. And 
I think we're seeing God do that in our lives that is amazing that God shows up and is present even if we don't get the fullness of the answers and that's what's good we get to engage with god and know him <laughs> god isn't some means to a comfortable easy american dream life god himself is our all satisfying glory and possession and so if some of these things get taken away so that i might know and love him more uh, it makes me afraid to say it but that's what i want because he's my joy he's my glory he's my lifter of my head not some of these other things that I dread mm. being taken away. And I do dread things being taken away. And there is serious, real pain in the yeah. world that we don't know how to deal with apart from holding to the reality that somehow God is good and he's at work in this even when I don't get it. Yeah. I think that one uh, prayer I've started praying just in the past couple of years, like you were saying, Doug, it's kind of a, sometimes can be a terrifying thing, um, but just Lord, whatever it takes, I want you. If that means financial difficulty so that my joy is in you, if it means, um, you know, if it means living in chronic pain, like it's kind of happening yeah. in some ways in my life right now, then Lord, if that's what it's going to take to just have my joy steadfast in you and not in things of this world, like whatever it's going to take, uh, don't hold anything back that's going to draw me closer to yourself and that's not always easy and that my heart's not always fully there but um yeah that's something i want to continue just praying my whole life whatever it takes yeah yeah i think for me some of this mom's message of comfort versus completeness you know is god trying to make you simply comfortable or complete i would say there's there's been multiple times in my life where i don't think i've been suicidal but i've wanted to be dead um and a lot of that just goes through, um, think of one time in particular, it's probably three to six months um, from when I graduated high school. I went through, and I don't know if I was feeling that the entire time, but I was feeling a very just heavy like weight, a uh, ton of shame, I would say some, somewhat of a depression, while I was just kind of overwhelmed by the reality of my own sinfulness. And I think there was some just spiritual darkness and spiritual warfare type of stuff going on. And it was a lot of it was hard to understand. But I think it was in that season where the gospel became sweeter mm -hmm. to me than it ever has been. And one of the stories I sometimes tell is I worked as a housekeeper at a Navigator summer training program. And I would clean bathrooms. And sometimes I asked to clean bathrooms because I could be out on my own and do that. And some of the best moments I've had in all my life have come cleaning bathrooms and hearing the gospel just because it's like cleaning a toilet, whatever, like hearing the gospel preach and just being like, this is such good news. And I can come alongside that and say, I wouldn't know God the way I do now if I didn't walk mm -hmm. through some of those deep struggles, if I didn't experience some of that just depression and weight of and just the reality of my own sin. And so I'm in a lot of ways yeah. grateful for that. And I wouldn't take that back. I wouldn't trade that for anything because through that, I have come to know God more deeply I think of Paul, a great passage to look at for this, even the problem of evil is 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about how he has this thorn in his flesh. And it's been remarked, and I think this is a helpful way of thinking about it, that we don't know exactly what his thorn was. Some people say it was his bad eyesight. Some people say it was something like malaria. Some people say it was, you know, there's all these different answers. But what we do know is that he calls it a tormentor from Satan. 
And so we know that it's from Satan and it's tormenting him. And yet we also know that it's something that God has given to him. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited in verse seven of chapter 12, uh, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So this Paul was given such great revelation and understanding. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, that I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think that that's such a good one, because it's, okay, Satan having his attack on Paul, and yet he's saying God is allowing this, and he has his plan for it. And so one illustration that I really enjoy that I've heard is the difference between a vivisector and a surgeon. Mm. So a vivisector is someone who would cut open live animals for study. But when the live animals would be cut open, there's no there's no like follow-up plan of like this is the rehab for the animal. It's just like we're going to mm. learn about this animal and we're going to cut it open while it's still living mm. to look at it. And so this is a real practice, and I've told my students about this, and they're, they remember this one because they're like, that's a terrible practice. <laughs> but, yeah, it's horrifying. So, like, a vivisector, they go inside and they viva, you know, sector. Like, they're, they're cutting a live animal open, uh, and they're examining it. They're studying it. And the question is, is God more like a vivisector hmm. or is he more like a surgeon? Because a surgeon, when a surgeon goes in, they make every single cut only intentionally. Like I just got my ACL reconstruction and there were different scope holes where they went in and then they cut around the patellar. But if if I were to go back to the doctor and say, you know, okay, so what was this cut? What was this cut? They'd be able to tell me, my doctor would, my surgeon would be able to tell me why he did yeah. each cut, why he did each move. But if I was to have this like big gash on the leg, I said, well, why did you do this one? He, and he said, I was just, honestly, I was just curious. I just wanted to see what happened. And man, it bled like crazy. Um, it'd be like, what? No, like, yes, you're not a good surgeon. Like, you, don't, you don't just cut because you can yeah. out of curiosity. And then the question is, yeah, is God, the, is God a vivisector or a surgeon? And believing that God is a surgeon, what that means for us practically then is, if we see that, we believe the best of all possible worlds, God the good surgeon over our life, that means every single cut mm. of pain and suffering is not some mere cosmic accident, but it's the intentional hand of the loving Father. And that is, I think, the flip. Um, Doug, you've talked about this in the past, and I wonder if you could get into it a little bit. Just kind of the way that maybe we reject the prosperity gospel. If you could explain what the prosperity gospel is briefly, but then even the way that maybe we allow many prosperity yeah. gospels in our life. Yeah, this is actually taken from Justin Taylor, I think. But the prosperity gospel says you believe in God and you will be rich, you will be wealthy, you will be healthy. Just pray, name and claim it, and there's all sorts of abuses there but we were talking with justin taylor actually at a gospel coalition conference and our dad asked the question what do you see as some of the greatest issues for christianity in the u.s today and 
his statement was prosperity light. He mentioned a few other things as well, but this is the one that stood out to me the most. And he was saying that prosperity light is this idea, not that, okay, I'm going to get crazy rich and all these things, because we know that that's not right. But a lot of times as Christians, we can still think, but if I love God, if I pray enough, then I'm not going to have major evil things happen. I'm not going to have serious pains. I'm going to have joy and contentment. I'll enjoy reading my Bible today. And if I'm not enjoying reading my Bible, there's probably just something that's wrong. Or there's a sense of, okay, we're not going to get crazy rich. But if I really follow God, most things will still work out pretty all right for me. And I'll be happy and I'll have pleasure and I'll have joy and contentment. And there's a subtleness there because if you follow the Lord, there will be more joy in life. And there is a satisfaction because that's what we're made for. But in this world, you will have trials. But take heart for I've overcome the world is what Jesus says. First Peter uh, 4.12, I think it is. Or no, it, yeah, 4.12 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But often if something horrible happens in our lives, we consider it something strange rather than this is what scripture has promised us. So the prosperity light makes it seem that, okay, I'm not going to get crazy rich, but things will still mostly work out. And if they don't, then God has failed. And so we begin to reject God for doing in our lives things that pr scripture promises will happen. Jesus tells us, if you follow me, you will be persecuted. He tells us you will have troubles in this world. Yeah. And he doesn't say, follow me and those will be taken away. He says, follow me and have hope because I've overcome the world and I will make all things new. And we can begin to think, if I just follow Jesus, then these terrible things won't happen. But what we're doing when that happens is we're making these other things our God. So what we really want is to not lose our money, to have physical health, to have good relationships, to have peace and joy. And Jesus becomes a means of getting those things. And now it's not that we're trying to get just crazy amounts of money or the prosperity gospel, but we're doing the same thing as the prosperity gospel where we make Jesus a means to something else rather than saying what I want is Christ and I enjoy any of these other things that he gives me as blessings but Christ is our primary desire all right yeah no that's that's good Doug thanks for asking that Mark thanks so Doug uh what about any final thoughts can you close this out for us yeah my Kind of last thoughts is that it'd be easy to take what we're saying about the best of all possible worlds and God is in control and treat these truths in a way that's stoic. And the stoics basically didn't have any attachment to things. When pain issues arise, they tried to make it such that they wouldn't respond at all, but just had peace, contentment, no grief. And that they viewed that as maturity. And that has had a pretty big effect on Christianity, but also in some ways Calvinistic circles because people think, oh, everything is working for good, therefore I don't grieve over pain. Uh, and the clearest way to say that that's just wrong is to look at the life of Christ. 
because he is weeping with Mary when Lazarus dies and angry at death. He grieves and laments when he comes into Jerusalem, wishing that the people had come to him, but they wouldn't. He's angry at the hardness of heart of the Pharisees when they're refusing to heal people on the Sabbath. He is angry at the practices going on in the temple and he overthrows the temple in what looks like an apparent rage. And so if we look at the life of Christ, it's not this stoic detachment because all things are working for good, but there is a true grieving, weeping anger at sin. So what I don't want people to come away with is thinking, okay, since all things are working for good, then I don't have to wrestle with trusting God. No. If we look at our lives, there is genuine grief and struggle and wrestling and questioning. If you look at the life of Christ, who's the perfect human, you see pain and sorrow. Just read the Psalms, and over and again you're going to see the ways that people are truly bringing their sorrow before the Lord. So yes, we believe that the world is the best. We believe that God is at work. He's making himself known. But just like Jesus, we still want to grieve over our sorrows. And I think it's also helpful to think about Jesus because sometimes when I've been going through sorrow and pain, it's almost like, God, where are you? Where are you in this? Come and meet me here. But then during my time overseas, I began to realize I'm asking that question the wrong way because Jesus has already gone through all of this sorrow and pain. He went to the cross. He suffered rejection. He was despised by humans. He was denied by his closest friends. He was rejected by his brothers. He was spit on and taken to the cross and mocked as the king of the Jews. So when I ask Jesus, would you meet me here? The reality is when I go through suffering to follow Christ, it's not that I need Jesus to come here to me, but I'm actually going in and joining in with him and what he's been through already. So I think of Philippians 3.10, where Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And I think I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Absolutely. The fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Paul, what are you talking about? And I began to realize Paul so deeply wants to know Christ that he doesn't just want to have the positive experiences of Christ, but even the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings was his desire. And I have found in my life that sharing in the sufferings of Christ is sweet in a way that's distinct from anything else. And it gives me hope that I'm not just asking Jesus, would you come here and meet me? But I'm actually going somewhere that Christ has already been. And he already has been through these things. He trusted the Father when I fail to trust God. He loves perfectly when I would become hard and cold. He has paid it all. And now we get to join in with him. He doesn't stand aloof or distant or uncaring. He isn't ungrieved by sin and brokenness and pain. But he's the God who becomes man, who takes all of our sorrow and affliction, who weeps, who pays for all of our sin. And now we're joining him in the fullness of what it means to be human. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. 
think of Hebrews 13, 12 to 13. It says, so Jesus also mm-hmm. suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. That's I great. I can't help but think of that as you shared that, Doug. That's good. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.